Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, A Crisis of Masculinity, from our audio collection titled, Sex in the Pulpit. Amen. Our Father God, thank you for our time together here now. We commit it to you and ask you to bless it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I've got a, just a couple of uh, a welcome and an announcement. I wanted to welcome all the NSA students and the Culture Making 101 seminar attendees. Thank you for joining us for this session. Um, one of the things we want to do in, in what we're doing is uh, in the as we're trying to figure out what we're doing, one of the things we want to do is uh, not just have uh, people from all different walks of life in the same place in the same time. We want to have people in different generational spaces preparing to take their place at the next place. One of the things that we uh, are up against is that we have this desire in our culture to uh, look forward to adolescence and then glory in it and then look back at your youth as though that's the the one time you're supposed to be where you're to live your life perpetually. And we believe that we are to glorify God in the lives he've, he has given us from infancy to old age. And each generation should be preparing the generation before them to occupy the space where they're where they currently are. And that's part of what we're doing here. There's a lot more involved, but you are welcome. Thank you for your uh, attendance here. Also, just um, so you know the drill uh, leading up to, to lunch, uh, when I'm, I'm going to give my presentation now, give the talk now, and then I'm going to introduce, we're going to have a uh, presentation from Logos Bible Software. I'll introduce the the presenter there at the conclusion of the talk, and he's going to give a, uh, a presentation. And then after that, I've got some announcements that I want you to uh, stick around for because they affect you and lunch. All right, so uh, your lunch rides on you um, paying attention to those announcements. So talk, Logos Bible presentation software, and, and then um, uh, announcements regarding the rest of the day and what we're going to be doing over lunch. So with that said, I want to uh, turn to the topic of uh, masculinity and the current crisis in the whole area of masculinity that our, our age, our era, our generation is up against. Just as hot promises are not picked up by cold prayers, so also a masculine message is not going to be declared by effeminate men. A masculine message is not going to be declared by effeminate men. We have a real crisis in masculinity, and in a very real sense, it began in the church and with the leadership of the church, and it's not going to be restored until it is restored in the church. We, we have, and I believe this, this problem has been long in the making, I believe it goes back to the early part of the 19th century, actually, in North America. And I believe that we can't just go back 10 years or go back 15 years. Uh, that, that is returning to an earlier stage when your cancer was not quite so advanced, but you still have cancer. If we want 
radical reformation, we must have radical repentance. The word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. So a radical is someone who goes to the root. A radical is someone who sees what the first principles are, who sees what the first causes are. The reason we have an effeminate gospel preached is we have an effeminate church and we have an an effeminate church because the men are gone or because the men who remain have allowed themselves to be isolated, quarantined, or otherwise made to behave. If you have, um, we have gotten to the point where masculine piety is not something we recognize. We recognize feminine piety, and I don't want to take anything away from feminine piety. It's, it's true piety, but it's feminine piety, and we have made that the template or the norm for every expression of piety. And so consequently, men don't want to conform to that. They don't want to fit in with that. They don't like it. Well, or there's two problems. One is men don't like it, and they leave. The other problem is that some men do like it, and they try to adapt themselves to it, and that's where the effeminacy comes from. A lot of these problems go back to, uh, as Leon Podolis argues in his fine book, The Church Impotent, a lot of these problems go back to um, Bernard of Clairvaux. And you say, what? What? Well, here's the problem. When we're talking about masculinity in the church, why, why am I talking about a crisis of masculinity in the church when the church is described throughout the Bible as a bride. The church is she. The church is feminine. Jesus Christ is masculine. The church is feminine. Well, I'm, what do you mean? Wouldn't, uh, shouldn't we be in the church? In the church, shouldn't we be effeminate if we are the bride? Well, no. Effeminacy is where you have feminine characteristics where they ought not to be. Uh, you can have a very feminine woman who's not effeminate at all. Her femininity is appropriate to her. The question that you might ask, however, is if the church is feminine, uh, if the church is described as the bride, the wife of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the bride of Christ in the New Testament, why am I trying to get masculine leadership going in the church? Well, Femininity, I have to begin by distinguishing male and female and masculine and feminine. Male and female and masculine and feminine are not synonyms. And you have to be very careful with this because it's, it'd be easy for people to twist, uh, twist your words and turn it into something else you're not saying. But masculinity has to do with authority responsibility, and taking the initiative. And femininity has to do with uh, responsiveness, obedience, and submission. So consequently, you could have parents, a man and a woman, male and female, dealing with a two-year-old boy. The two-year-old boy is male. His mother is female. But it says in Proverbs, my son, obey the law of your mother. My son, obey the law of your mother. The son, who is male, must submit to the woman who is female. The woman who is female must submit to her husband who is male. But the masculinity and the femininity are not identical. They're not coterminous. Uh, With 
uh, male and female and masculinity and femininity are not interchangeable terms. You can have a uh, God the Father is masculine, God the Son obeyed the Father when he, um, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, it says in Philippians 2. He emptied himself, was obedient even to the point of uh, death, the point of the cross. So Christ obeyed the Father, but he is not, fe- it's not a female thing, but it is a, it is a submissive thing. And then he is the bridegroom. He is masculine. The church is feminine, even though the church is half male. The church is half male, half female, but entirely feminine. So why are you insisting, someone might say, why are you insisting on masculine leadership in the church? I insist on it because it's the feminine thing to do. Right? It's the submissive thing to do. It's obedience. God tells Paul that uh, to tell us that women are not to teach or have authority over men in the church. So, ironically, the feminists who want to disobey that and have put women in positions of leadership are trying to usurp a masculine uh, role. They're trying to take the initiative. They're trying to disobey where we're told to be obedient. And the men who want to assume responsibility are doing so submissively. It's not like we don't get, men don't get to... um, run the show because they're taller and have deeper voices and can be scarier. Um, That's not why men are given responsibility. They're given responsibility because God gives it. God says, I want you to do this. And when we do do what he says, we are being obedient. We are being submissive. So, uh, and, and then in the then within the church, you have a family, uh, male and female parents who are providing together masculine leadership for the children who are obedient and dutiful and obey. And then a son grows up and he grows up into the point where he leaves. He moves out from underneath the parent's authority. He takes a wife. The two become one flesh and he establishes his own um, headship. He, he establishes his own family. So when we talk about masculinity in the church, we, we have to talk about doing what God says to do, obeying God. So uh, going back to Bernard of Clairvaux, the problem was this. The church corporately was feminine. The church corporately was feminine. And there's no problem when you have a group of uh, saints gathering together, worshiping, male and female together, and we're all worshiping God, and the preacher says, Christ is the bridegroom, and we are the bride, everybody takes it right in stride, because everybody understands you're dealing with a corporate reality. But let's say uh, you do what Bernard de Clairvaux did, which is you take the corporate devotion of the church, and you radically individualize it. And all the devotional apparatus of the church that the church corporately engages in, an individual male takes into his own private prayer closet and tries to begin composing himself, adorning himself as a bride adorns herself for her husband. Well, he is, you're going to have one of two problems. Either he's going to be no good at it and he's going to hate it and he's going to want to leave the church. He's going to get out of there or he's going to be kind of good at it. Hey, I kind of like this. And if he kind of likes it, then he's going to stick around and he's your problem. And the, and the guys who are masculine, who are chased out, are your problem because they're gone. 
Our feminine response to God as the bride should be a corporate feminine response. And in that corporate feminine response, when we come to the individual things that he has told us to do, he tells the wives to submit to their own husbands, obey their own husbands. He, takes the, he tells the husbands to take responsibility. He tells the husbands to take responsibility in the church. And when the husbands are taking responsibility and the wives are following their lead and together they're bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, corporately, that's the feminine obedient thing to do. If we try to do some other arrangement, it's, it's just high rebellion, high disobedience. So this is the crisis of masculinity that we have in the church. And I want to uh, talk about two main things. I want to talk about two main things. And I'd like to refer you, uh, if you want to pursue any of these, I, I uh, deal with these things also in, my, in the recent book, Father Hunger. These are things that are addressed uh, there. We want to begin by paying special attention to the first words spoken by God the Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, at the beginning of the New Testament. We know from all of Scripture that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. He is God the Father. But these opening words tell us a great deal about what our typical fatherhood is like. If you want to know what fatherhood is like, look to God the Father. If you want to know what masculinity is like, look to scripture. Some of you might say, well, I didn't have a good model of this growing up, or, uh, you know, I came from a broken home and my stepdad didn't, you know, that sort of thing. I, I'm uh, concerned about getting married because I don't know how I would be a model to my kids and, and so on. What do we, where do we look? Where do we start? We start by returning to the scriptures. When Jesus was baptized, it says in Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right, so these are the opening words of God the Father in the New Testament. Now, there's a world of information about fatherhood in these two brief verses. There's six main things. First, when Jesus was baptized... His father was present. His father was there. Second, he made his presence felt by sending his spirit to descend like a dove in order to rest upon Jesus. So the father was there. He made his presence felt by sending his spirit to, send, to descend upon Jesus. Third, he made his presence known by speaking. And then we, look, we learn the rest of it from what he said. What did he say? His statement corresponded to the giving of the Spirit in that the Father identified with his Son. He said, this is my Son. So that's the fourth thing. I'm with him. This is my Son. Fifth, he expressed his love for his Son. This is my beloved Son. And then last, he expressed his pleasure in his Son. He said, good job. All right. Now, this is what fatherhood is like. These six elements give us, in a nutshell, what real fatherhood looks like. This is where fatherhood in earthly history reaches its ultimate expression. You're not going to find in all of human history, you're not going to find a more perfect father-son moment than that moment. That is it. That, if, if, you, if you learn and see what's involved in that, um, you've got it. 
and this is the keynote. The, the thing, the, the, high, the high pitch that it ends on is pleasure. This is the pitch that a father-son relationship needs to match. Well pleased. Now, I'm saying father-son. This also apl applies to daughters. This, if you say, well, okay, I'm not married yet, or my kids are little, but man, I wish I had that kind of relationship with my dad. This, what, what we're doing here is we're learning what it's like. We're getting the picture in our minds. Don't worry about application yet. Don't worry about what can I run off and do yet. Just get the picture firmly in your mind. So when we don't match that pitch of well pleased, a lot of things start going on, a lot of things start going wrong. In fact, so many things start going wrong that sometimes we miss the source of all our trouble. In our generation, we are confronted with many social dislocations that all go back to a foundational father hunger. All men are the son of some man, and all women are the daughter of some man, but far too many of them have never heard their father say anything like what the father said to the son. And the father said, well, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> you know, the father said to the son with whom I'm well pleased, but after all, the father was talking to Jesus. That was Jesus. You're no Jesus. I, you know, yeah, fine, but you're no father. <laughs> Ambrose Bierce defined a Christian as someone who believes the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. One, one who, one who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as it's not inconsistent with a life of sin. And you say, oh, he's kind of a, he's kind of a disrespectful unbeliever, isn't he? Yes, but we ought not to give handles to that, that, that sort of thing. Think about it for, think about it for a minute. Um, the father was there. The father made his presence felt. The father made his presence known. The father said, this is my son. The father said, this is my beloved son. And the father said, he did a good job. Now just take that and translate it into your son's got a baseball game. He's got a baseball game, so what do you do? First thing, you go. <laughs> you show up. You show up at the baseball game. You make your presence known. You make your presence felt by how you show up. You're not up in the top stands because you have to be there, you have to make an appearance, but you're going to spend all the time checking your email. Your, your presence is felt. Then you make your presence known. You're, the, you're, you're a noisy spectator. You make your presence known. You identify with your son. That's my son. Whose kid is that? When, you, when he hits a triple and you wonder aloud, loudly, whose son is that? That's mine. Right? And you, say, and, and you say, well, if I did that, I would mortify my son. I would embarrass him. Well, I'd go ahead and do it. <laughs> be, be good for him. I'm with him. He's with me. Identify with your son. Um, express your love for him. This is my beloved son. And then say, that was quite a triple. That was. And you say, those are the elements. Show up. Make your presence felt. Make your presence known. Um, identify with. Express your love and express your pleasure. And you say, that's it. That, that's what God the Father did with God the Son. Now, I can assure you, I can assure you that if that happened more in the church between fathers and sons and fathers and daughters, a host of the current problems that we have would not be here. 
right? We are, we are dealing with the fruit of our disobedience. We're dealing with the fruit of our reluctance to do this. I, don't, I go to the doctor, I've got these aches and pains, and he gives me pills, and I don't want to take them. So I go back to him two weeks later, all the same aches and pains, and I've got all the pills. I haven't taken any of the pills. And, he's, and he said, did you, take, did you take the medicine I gave you? No, well, no, I didn't feel like it, but I, I want you to fix me without me doing what you say. But that, it doesn't work like that. Well-pleased is an alien concept to many of us. And because it is so unknown, we have a great deal of cultural debris to work through. That being the case, we need to get on it. We need to get started. As we look around, we know that we're broken. We know that our society is broken, but we somehow assume that our notions of fatherhood and what fatherhood ought to be like are intact. But perhaps it goes the other way. Perhaps our world is broken because it is our understanding of fatherhood that was shattered first. So what is it that a father has to provide? What, do, what are fathers for? All right. Now, in an era when artificial insemination can be done by someone else, all right, you can have sperm donors and you can have fathers who have technically become the fathers of many children, but they weren't present at the begetting. Right? They were long gone. In a generation that can do that sort of thing, and you think the one biological act that makes a father a biological father can be sort of outsourced, or almost outsourced. What's, what's a dad for? It makes us think, and, and um, it makes us think that men are optional. Many feminists talk that way. They, they want to get to the point where um, men as men can be dispensed with. God's order uh, means that that's impossible, but at first glance, you might say, well, uh, what are men for? After the, after the initial act of begetting, why is all this maleness necessary? An, another... Um, I wrote a book once called uh, Federal Husband, and a young father, um, on reading that book, his exclamation was, now I know what I'm for. I know what I'm for. I, I have a purpose. It's not just, okay, okay, uh, the women have, can have the children, and they, they nurse them, and they take care of them, and they run the home and everything, and let's come, uh, we need to come up with something for the guy to do. You know, he, he got her pregnant, and so let's, uh, okay, let's make him the breadwinner. All right, and so you make the guy the breadwinner, and then you get into an era where a woman can be as educated and can get a job and she might be bringing more money in and, and, and men are dislocated and insecure and what, what am I doing? What am I for? Well, in Genesis, it says God put Adam in the garden to, uh, to till it. To, uh, so basically to cultivate and protect, to provide and protect. The two, the two essential uh, mission statements of men are to provide and protect. Provide for his wife, provide for his children, and protect his wife, protect the children. In order to do this, God vests men with authority. God vests men with authority. But there are two kinds of authority, and if you are married now, you, need to, you might need to do some um, 
back up and, okay, I need to do some repair work or I need to do some adjustments. If you're unmarried, you need to be, you need to be preparing yourself for the time when you will enter into this, this setup. There are two kinds of authority. One is the authority of office, which can be obtained in all, all sorts of ways. The other kind of authority is the kind that flows to the person who takes responsibility. This is spiritual authority. This is intangible authority. This is mojo authority. There is the authority of office, and there is the authority of giftedness, uh, a charisma, a, a, a blessing. So it says that uh, this is the second kind of authority is the kind of authority that uh, flowers uh, after a death and resurrection. It, we're told in Matthew that Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes. Now, the scribes had official authority. They had the authority of office. So when someone is a reverend, when someone is a pastor, when someone's a theologian, when someone is graduated from seminary and they have an MDiv, that's official authority. When someone is a rabbi, when someone has a card, when someone has the transcript, when someone has the ordination uh, service behind him, when someone has pastor in front of his name, that's the authority of office. That's ecclesiastical authority. Um, and the, Jesus and the rabbis uh, had that kind of authority. Jesus was a rabbi, and they were rabbis. In the home, a father, someone who has married a woman and who has uh, begotten children by her, he has the authority of office. He is a husband, and he is a father. He has that authority simply by virtue of where he is, right? That he is a husband. He has authority. And this is, uh, every father has the authority that comes with the office. This is why scripture tells us to honor father and mother and doesn't put a series of special conditions on it. It doesn't say in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother if, provide, if and only they've been good fathers and mothers. It just says, honor your father and mother, period. It does not say honor your father provided he deserves it. The authority of office only is the authority that scripture does recognize and support, even when the office holder is clearly not up to the task. The Bible honors and supports, backs up official authority, but even with that backing, it can only go so far. So, the authority of office, the illustration I use is the authority of office is like having the right checkbook with you. It's like having the right checkbook. That is your name in the upper left-hand corner. It is your address, your account number. You're an authorized signatory on the account. You went down to the bank and you remember the conversation with the lady who opened up the checking account for you. It's your checkbook. You've got the driver's license. You can prove that your name is that name in the checkbook. You have the authority of office. You are the signatory on the account. The other kind of authority, the charismatic authority, the mojo authority, the, the authority that is um, more authoritative is like having money in that checking account. All right, you have money in the bank. If a man is bouncing checks left and right, it will do no good for him to complain that he still has checks left or that it's still his checking account. How can I be out of money? I still have checks. I have seen many fathers who tried to write a big check 
that their children would clear for him. And they demanded that their children do this because they could prove from the Bible and from my book, Her Hand in Marriage, that it was their checkbook. All right, so I have this daughter who's in love with a schmo. What do I do? I've ignored my daughter for 18 years. I've been on the road all the time. I haven't, I haven't spoken, I haven't had a real conversation with her in five years. And, I've, you know, and now she's gone in love, fallen in love with a schmo. And I'm going to come in, I, I need to tell her that she, she can't have anything to do with this schmo. And I'm sitting there, and, and, and he'll come in and say, I need to tell my daughter she can't, she's got to break up with him. And I'm thinking, that's going to be a check for $100,000. You've got $3.95 in your account, and you want to write a check for $100,000. And he'll say, yes, but the Bible says this is my checkbook. The Bible says that I can sign this account. The Bible says that I have this authority. Yeah, the Bible says all that. And I've had a, I've had a dad say, I, quote, you know, in, in her hand in marriage, you say that a father should be able to... And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, this guy is a schmo. But yeah, I, I agree with you. But he's three times better than you. <laughs> I, think you're, I think your daughter's upgrading. Um, And, and you say, but, 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 it's my checkbook, right? Well, both the assertions can be tri- quite true. This is my checkbook, and uh, you have no money. You don't want to write checks that aren't going to clear. Now, let's say th- there are times, uh, <laughs> this is not usually what happens, there are times when a father comes in and he'll confess, I've not been a good father. I've not put money in the bank. I've not spent time with my daughter. I've not taught her. I've not loved her. I've not done anything. And now she's gone and f- fallen in love with the chieftain of the Hells Angels. And, and, and he's got a good income, but it's all from cocaine. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I, what do I do? Well, there are times when a father has to write the check. He has to say, I can't bless this because it's for you, my daughter, to go that direction is is to violate God's black letter law. You're, you're heading into a rebellion against Ten Commandments stuff. But if you want to marry a Christian man that I, your neglectful father, don't approve of, uh, I'm going to be taking the father aside and say, let it go, man. <laughs> you, you, had your, you had your chance. If you, if you know that you live in a world where you, are go- you might have to tell your daughter, no, hon, we, we can't do that. And you know that it's going to be a big check. You want to be the kind of father who has deposited enormous amounts of money in that checkbook. And, and the check clears. In order to deal with the plague of fatherlessness, in order to deal with the fatherlessness, and, the, and there's the father waving the checkbook, and there's the father writing checks with money in the account. You want to have, um, you want to be able to take your family out to dinner, and have a checkbook, and not have to worry about are, are we sailing close to the wind? You, have, you know you've got money to cover. You're providing for your family, and you know that what you're doing covers it. Well, you want to be that kind of father. In order to deal with the plague of fatherlessness, we have to return to a worship of God the Father. Because when we worship God the Father, like I said in the first talk, Psalm 115, we become like what we worship. 
No, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven. We are, we are taught and brought to the, we are taught the Father and brought to the Father by the Son. We can't have the Father without the Son, and we can't have the Son without the Spirit. Not only so, but we can't have any of them without the preaching of the gospel. The culture of absenteeism that we see around us is a function of how we worship. Theologian Henry Van Til once taught us that culture is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. At the very center of every culture is a cultus, a practice or a principle of worship. In a Christian context, think of it as church and kingdom or church and parish. You've got the worship at the center of the town, and then you've got automotive mechanics and the printing shop and the, and the quilting shop and all this stuff out in parish. You've got the church at the center, and the worship of God flows out into culture. At the center of the community, you have the house of worship. Outside that place of formal worship, you have all the activities that men and women pursue. They ought to pursue it in obedience of Christ, of course, but they ought not to pursue it, uh, those things, auto mechanics, in the context of formal worship. There are many lawful activities and pursuits that ought to be excluded from the sanctuary, even though they are taught, shaped, and informed by the ministry of the sanctuary. Examples would include lovemaking, auto mechanics, great naval battles, and heart surgery. Don't do any of those in the sanctuary. But in order to have these kingdom activities structured rightly, conducted rightly, it's necessary to have the worship at the center being conducted rightly. Worship is the necessary governor. Worship is the rudder that steers the whole ship. This means that if we see a dearth of fathers in the realm outside worship, we must not try to organize pro-fatherhood rallies out there. It's not going to work. The need of the hour is to return to the worship of God the Father in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit and all conducted in the name of the Lord Jesus. Trying to fix society without, the, without addressing the central issues of worship is futile in the extreme. If you say, okay, we're going to... Many Christians want to fix, uh, we're, we're in a culture war, and we are in a culture war, but we're in a culture war where the cultus, the worship, our formal worship, is anemic, deficient, scattered, disorganized, disobedient, irreverent, and all over the map. And then we, and we see them agitating for um, abortion legislation, or, or they, they want to... Uh, have homosexual marriage or whatever. So we organize, we want a lobbying presence in Washington that's conducted on the same principles that Big Tobacco and the gun lobby. Uh, we'll pray, we're a voting block. We're, we're a special interest group. And we want to go there and pressure you to not do those things, even though our worship is a mess. Our worship of God is a mess. We cannot have, just like you can't have a naval war without ships, and you can't have a tank war without tanks. You can't have a culture war without a culture. And you can't have a culture, you can't have a distinctively Christian culture without worship. You've got to have cultus that forms cult culture, and then when you have culture that's, as, 
Cornelius Van Til called it epistemologically self-conscious, where you have Christians worshiping God on the Lord's Day and then self-consciously implementing that worship in all the activities that men and women do in the life of their day, in their day-to-day lives. When that takes shape, then you've got a culture, then you've got the possibility of a culture war, a real culture war. Right now, the... Um, the secularists are doing battle with the vestiges of a Christian culture. They are not doing battle with a real, living, active Christian culture. Trying to fix society without addressing the central issues of worship is futile. A comparable exercise would be somebody who tries to establish a new hive of bees without organizing the new colony around a queen bee. It is not possible to go out in a fresh meadow and organize the bees there by waving your arms. The queen is essential. In the same way, worship is the queen bee. Worship is the essential principle in establishing any human culture. Everything else is just waving your arms in the meadow. Come on, there's a great far side, far side cartoon. Uh, where a flock of sheep and there's a, one sheep standing up on his hind legs yelling at all the rest. Guys, we don't have to just be sheep, right? <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. Worship has to be central, and it's got to be worship of God the Father. And if it's worship of God the Father, then men are going to come and worship God the Father. They're going to assume to themselves the responsibility to go out and be images of that father to their families. And they're going to go out and whatever it is they do, whether they're attorneys or writers or scientists or whatever, they're going to go out and be fathers because they've worshiped God the Father. And as they are fathers providing for their family, providing and protecting, and they do that and they bring their families to worship God, what's going to take shape, what's going to happen is a culture is going to start to form. When that starts to happen, it will be viciously attacked. It will be attacked because this is the one thing that if it starts to form and starts to go, people are going to see it. They're going to say, oh, oh, that's, that's what you're talking about. You're not talking about evangelical, uh, evangelicals lobbying Washington like Big Tobacco does. Now, of course, I'm not endorsing anything that falls under the heading of worship. Just calling it worship isn't okay. Idolatrous worship will shape idolatrous cultures, and the worship of the true and triune God will result in true human culture. Worship of the right God on paper will result in paper-thin Christian cultures, the kind that, can't with, that cannot withstand the assaults of unbelief. So here's how it works. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, and in the petition about the Father's kingdom, it's the Father's kingdom, thy kingdom, whose kingdom? The Father's kingdom. What are we doing here on earth? We are establishing the Father's kingdom. We are necessarily, inescapably patriarchal. It's the Father's kingdom. Now, it's not patriarchal in the sense that it's what anybody might call patriarchy, but it's patriarchal in this sense. At the, at the center of all reality, we have fatherhood. The font of all things is a father. And we need to be unembarrassed about that. So in the petition about the Father's kingdom, we learn something quite striking. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Matthew 6.10. It would be very easy to connect this petition with nothing more than the cheerful alacrity of angels. That's how I took it for years. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be, O Lord, may we be obe as obedient and as, as quickly down here as presumably the angels are in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God says jump, the angels say how high on the way up, and we ought to be the same way. So let's obey quickly the way the angels obey quickly. And I think that's true enough, but I, I, I've come to believe I don't, I, I've come to believe that that's not the full understanding of this. In other words, when God, uh, to, to describe this cheerful alacrity issue, in other words, when God asks for something to be done in heaven, the angels don't go around with pouty expressions slamming doors behind them. Uh, neither should we. Or so this understanding of this petition goes. While this is all quite true, we shouldn't obey God with surly attitudes. There appears to me to be more going on here. Jesus first tells us to pray that the Father's kingdom would come, not that it would go. We are not praying, uh, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom go. Or, Father, please take your kingdom away from here as soon as possible. It's not thy kingdom go, it's thy kingdom come. We are praying that the Father's will would be done on earth the same way it is done in heaven. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is in apposition to the first phrase. Thy kingdom come, thy will being done on earth is filling out what it means for his kingdom to come. But we're saying this in a petition addressed to the Father in prayer. When we worship God, the Father, the Bible teaches us that we are ascending into the heavenly places in order to, in order to do so. This means that when we glorify God the Father in heaven, in our worship, it is fully appropriate to ask God to then glorify his name on earth as it has just been glorified in heaven. So we go into heaven, we glorify the name of God in heaven, and we're worshiping him in heaven. That's what weekly worship is. And we say, now God, we've glorified your name in heaven. Take your name and glorify it on earth in just the same way. And when God glorifies his name on earth as it has been glorified in heaven. What is that? That's his kingdom coming. That's how his kingdom advances Sunday to Sunday. Now, in doing this, we're asking him to take the instrument of the worship we have just offered and use it to glorify his name on earth, for it has been glorified in heaven. The process of this happening is the process of God's kingdom coming to earth. And this is happening as we worship the Father, hallowing his name. And it should go without saying that we do not hallow his name by being embarrassed by his name or by changing it to something that will not cause consternation in local lesbian circles. Great spirit. Um, the lesbians say, but you're calling him a father, and that excludes us. <laughs> no, how can it exclude... The Father is the Father of all things. The Father is the Father of men and women. The Father is the Father of everything that is. How does it exclude anything in the created order to acknowledge that he's the Father of all? But if worship is the engine, and it is, if we want to move down the road, at some point, I hate to break it to you, we have to let the clutch out. If we recover an understanding of the fatherhood of God, which can only be done if we worship in the name of his son, no man comes to the father but by me. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Then we will suddenly find ourselves seeing the malady of fatherlessness everywhere we look. 
when we come to God the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit, we're going to look around and we're going to think, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's what that is. This guy's not playing video games till three in the morning because of an addiction to video games. <laughs> he's doing this because he doesn't have a dad. Right? He's, do he's doing this because he doesn't know who he is. He's doing that because he doesn't know what he's for. He doesn't know what he was made for. He doesn't know why he was shaped the way he, he doesn't know why all these things that are in him, or he doesn't know wh where to direct them. He, he's got this gun and he doesn't know where to point it. So, if we recover, uh, if we recover an understanding of fatherhood, we're su suddenly going to see the fatherlessness, the fatherlessness everywhere. If we want to connect the realities of worship to the needs of our culture, which is the crisis of masculinity, we will have to look at it with a true and evangelical faith. What is it that overcomes the world? First John 5, 4 says, is it not our faith? What is it that overcomes the world? The world out there doesn't know the Father. So we know the Father, and we are supposed to introduce the world to the Father, but we cannot introduce the world to the Father if we have let our relationship with the Father go neglected or remain uncultivated. Because we have worshipped the Father, we must then teach our boys. Most boys growing up need to be taught their strength, as when they're horsing around with their younger siblings. You have physical strength, you have an emotional presence, you take up all the, you're the biggest one, you're the loudest one, you've got all this energy that's sort of randomly sparking and arcing in different directions. An older man, a godly man, has to come alongside, that boy's dad has to come alongside and say, this is where that goes. Let me take you there. Let me show you what this is like. Let me, let me bring you to church with me so we worship God the Father so that I can become more like a father in my pilgrimage and you can become more like the father in your pilgrimage. They are Young boys are bigger, stronger, and more, much more influential, let us say, than they think they are. But the need for teaching this lesson doesn't disappear when boys get past the horsing around stage. In their families, men are much, much more important, crucial, and influential than they believe themselves to be. Let me say that again. In their families, grown men, married men, Christian men need to realize that they are much more important crucial and influential than they believe themselves to be. Take what, you think, take what you think your role is, take what you think your position is, take what you think your official position is, and take what you think your mojo position is, and then multiply it by 10. You can speak into that situation with far greater authority than you think you have. Now, if you've been insulting uh, you know, going back to the checkbook analogy, if you've been beating your breast about how, how much authority you have, this is my checkbook, look at how big the checkbook is, and you've not been making any deposits, yeah, you're going to run into another problem. But most, most conscientious Christian men have more authority available to them than they think they do. And authority in the Bible is not bossing around authority. Authority in the Bible is authority that bleeds. Authority in the Bible is authority that washes feet. Authority in the Bible is authority that sacrifices itself. And authority, true mojo authority, flows to those who take responsibility. And it flees those who try to evade responsibility. You young men, 
your, your waking thought, what you think when you get up and when you think about when you lie down is, should be, how can I learn to take responsibility? How can I learn to take responsibility? Because as you take responsibility, authority flows to you. As you take responsibility in your marriage, authority flows to you. As you take responsibility with, for your kids, authority flows to you. It's the easiest thing in the world for a man to grow up, be a biological male, get married, have kids, and still think of himself the same way he did when he was a boy. In the words of Mark Driscoll, he's a boy who shaves. You don't want to be a boy who shaves. You want to grow to be a man. You want to grow to be a father. And you want to be, grow to be a father who reflects the image of God the Father. If a man believes he's just one more person living in his household, just one more of the roommates, and now I've got a, uh, a girlfriend who's a roommate, uh, that's, not, that's not what God created. That's not a family. That's not, that, that's not the image that's being uh, given to us in Scripture. In the first talk, we talked about Genesis 1.27, that male and female together declare the image of God. There's no better statement of God's creational purpose for the world than a man and a woman living together in harmony. And there's no better statement of God's restorative purpose for the world in the gospel than a man and a woman living together in harmony. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's, that's the gospel. That's gospel imagery. That's what, and, and so every husband has the privilege, every father has the privilege of modeling the gospel every day. And what, what this means is when you start to do it, even, even if you, you're aware, uh, acutely aware to yourself of how much you stumble, how much you're not doing it, how inadequate your first feeble attempts at doing this are, it's amazing <clears throat> how desperate things are in our culture outside. People are going to think that your family is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And you're thinking, you, you, you are aware of all your attitudes and the things you were working through and all of these. And, and, and you say, what do you mean? What do you think mean amazing? And this coworker says, you eat together. You sit down at the same table and you do it every day. I've never seen that. I, I don't know what, you know, this is just, this is just amazing. I, I don't know what that's like. Oftentimes, you will, you will see things that you just take for granted, that God, by his grace, has enabled you to take for granted, and, and this is just ordinary. And then someone from outside will say, you pray with your wife, or you talk? I, I don't know what that's like. Now, you might say, well, they, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, um, yeah, and it's good to tell yourself that because... It helps keep you humble. Nobody's arrived, right? Nobody's arrived. But we, even though, I'll just conclude with this. Even though nobody's arrived at fatherhood, nobody's arrived at grandfatherhood, nobody's arrived and they can say, look at me. Nobody's arrived. You can know and walk in faith and be confident that you're on the right road, right? You can know that you're on the right road going in the right direction because every week you worship God the Father. Every week you're being restored into his image. Every week you're growing up into God's purpose for you. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness um, to us. We're very grateful for all the things you've given to us. I pray that you'd 
Uh, help us as we meditate on these things, and we return it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Sex and the Pulpit. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.